Turn in your Bibles or navigate on your tablet or device to Revelation chapter 14. We're studying through the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are in chapter 14. We're going to look at that whole chapter this morning, verses 1 through 20. The topic, in the middle of the tribulation, God sends an angel into the earth's atmosphere to preach the everlasting gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. The title of our message, Angels in the Atmosphere. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning thus far. It's been really great, Lord, to raise our voices together in praise before you. I'm always reminded, Lord, that um, you receive our singing as that of little children, Lord, who are... Um, just singing to their, their parents or their grandparents. And Lord, whatever it actually sounds like, it's beautiful to you. I thank you, Lord, that you allow us into your presence and that you send your Holy Spirit to be in this place. You say that when the church is gathered, Lord, we are the temple of your spirit, not just individually, but corporately. It's his guidance and wisdom that we need right now. It's his teaching ability that we need so that we will learn about the future tribulation, but also Lord, be inspired about our lives right now. Only through the Spirit, Lord, can we be touched by what we're reading and hearing to, uh, to application in the here and now. And we pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Go for it. Go for broke. Pull out all the stops. Go all out. Those are expressions we use to describe extraordinary effort put into some task. Racer Jeff Gordon once said, when you've got the Daytona 500 out there at stake and everything riding on the line, guys go for it. And the guys that go for it are the ones that are either going to win or they're going to wreck. Pro surfer Bethany Hamilton, who survived a shark attack but lost her arm said, I believe in Jesus Christ and I believe he gave me the passion and determination to continue surfing. I had to go for it. Chapter 14 of the revelation of Jesus Christ has a go-for-it spirit. It depicts the extraordinary effort by God in the seven-year tribulation to reach men with the gospel before it's too late for them to make an eternal decision. First, we see God go all out from the very start of the tribulation by raising up and sending out 144,000 Jewish evangelists to preach the gospel. Second, we see God pull out all the stops mid-trib by dispatching an angel into earth's atmosphere to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And it reminds us too that when it comes to Jesus Christ, we all have a decision to make and that our decision determines our eternal destiny. I'll organize my thoughts around two points this morning. Number one, the gospel demands that you make a decision. And number two, the Lord defers to the decision that you make. Let's take a look first of all at the gospel and its demand that we decide. My favorite thought about the revelation of Jesus Christ this time teaching through it is that on every page God is portrayed as calling out to sinners not willing that any should perish but that all would come to eternal life. Sure the tribulation is intense, but that's because the time to repent of sin and to be saved is so short and it's running out. Verses one through five both take us back to the very beginning of the seven years and they show us the end of those years. And so verse one, then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. 
This takes us back really to the beginning because as the tribulation began, we saw in chapter 7, God choose and commission these 144,000 Jews to go around the world preaching the gospel. They are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were sealed by God and rendered untouchable by their enemies. Here we see them safe and sound at the very end of the seven years, having accomplished their task. Lamb is John's favorite name for Jesus in this book. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, God's final sacrificial lamb. Mount Zion is on earth. This is an earthly scene. It is, in fact, the second coming of Jesus at the end of the seven years. And so the 144,000 who were chosen at the beginning minister throughout those seven years, and they're with Jesus at his second coming on Mount Zion. They gather to him, and then they will accompany him into the millennial kingdom on the earth that he will establish. Verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Now, I don't know why I like to do this, but I always remind you that harps are really instruments that are more like what we would call guitars. And they really are. I'm not making that up. I only bring that up because uh, there are many, many different styles of music. Uh, I don't like all styles of music. Maybe you do. But it doesn't matter. God likes many styles of music, and he uses them throughout the centuries uh, to bring glory to himself. Uh, And so... Whatever style you prefer, that's your preference, and that's great. Uh, But I like to point out that, in heaven at least, there will be guitars. So if you want to ban guitars in church, you're going to have trouble later on. Uh, And, you know, when they issue your your Guitar Hero guitar, you're going to automatically know how to play it. So anyway, guitars. They're multi-stringed instruments uh, that are uh, more like our guitars. Now, these sounds coming from heaven... They're going to be a soundtrack for the singing of verse 3. And in verse 3, we read, They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Now, we've seen these characters before the throne before. The four living creatures are a type of angel whose joy and job it is to worship the Lord day and night. And the elders are the church resurrected and raptured and safe in heaven prior to the tribulation. Do the 144,000 need to be in heaven because they're singing before the throne? Well, I say no. Whenever we sing, isn't it to God? Aren't we before him? Doesn't he hear it before his throne? Uh, we're not, when we sang this morning, we weren't transported into the throne room of God. We remained in Hanford. Uh, but God heard our prayers and heard our praise and received it in heaven. And so the 144,000, they're definitely on the earth with Jesus on Mount Zion at his second coming, and heaven is providing a live soundtrack for this song that they sing. It's a new song. God is preparing a lot of new music for the return of Jesus Christ. Several times in the Revelation, we read of a new song. And I, for one, enjoy the fact that throughout the history of the church, there has been new song. Uh, as each generation finds its voice of worship and praise. As for our evangelists, no one could learn that song except them. They were redeemed from the earth. That means they were saved by grace through faith, as is always the case. But it's clear they are a very distinct, very unique group among all those who are saved. They're described in verse 4 as not being defiled with women, for they are virgins. 
this seems to argue for their all being men. And as to sexual activity, they're said to be virgins. Now, why would this be? Well, think about it. These guys are untouchable by the forces of evil during the seven-year tribulation, but that would not extend to a family and a wife. They are better off without those relationships in the tribulation. The Bible does not teach celibacy as being more spiritual, only that at certain times it is preferable uh, because of the difficulties of being a Christian. It's also possible to relate these words to spiritual purity, letting us know that these guys avoided all spiritual fornication, but I think the more literal interpretation is what is intended. Verse four goes on to say, they are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the lamb. When you read that they followed the lamb wherever he goes, this is looking forward after the second coming to their work in the kingdom on the earth that Jesus will establish. So we see them at the beginning of the tribulation, sealed and sent with the gospel. They're all preserved and well, having accomplished their mission at the second coming of Jesus Christ on Mount Zion. And then after the judgment uh, that we'll see in a minute here in this chapter, they go on into the millennial kingdom, the kingdom of heaven on earth with the Lord as his sort of entourage or what we would call today a posse. These were redeemed from among men being first fruits to God and to the lamb. The first fruits are always the promise of a greater harvest. This is telling us they are definitely God's evangelists. They get saved and they go through the tribulation sharing Christ and God uses them to save multitudes. There's a great harvest of souls that comes out of their preaching. Verse five, in their mouth was found no deceit for they are without fault before the throne of God. Deceit is a word that can be associated with idols and idolatry. Now, the reign of the Antichrist is characterized by lies and by idolatry. In fact, we read in 2 Thessalonians that there is something called the lie that people who follow the Antichrist will believe. The 144,000 never waver. There is no compromise at all in them. Not only do they make it through to the end, they do so without being broken by the pressures exerted on them. There's a lot of talk today uh, in, uh, in and among Christians. I hear this taught a lot lately. It's a common theme about finishing well. We want to finish well. Anybody can start well, but we want to finish well and not fall and be lured into sin. These guys will definitely finish well. They'll stay strong throughout the tribulation. They will not believe the lie or any deceit or any idolatry, and they will be just as pure and on fire for the Lord as they were when they began. And they should be an encouragement to us because that's only possible for them because of the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells them. You might say, well, they're sealed and protected. Well, we're sealed as well by the Spirit, the Bible says. And there is a sense in which, though, we can suffer and go through much tribulation and persecution, um, I think we would all say in our better moments that uh, we're indestructible until God is through with us. And so let these guys be an encouragement to all of us to finish the race well and strong. They're standing uh, with the lamb. They're said to be without fault, could be translated without blemish. And that's important because Jews were familiar with that phrase. It described the quality of their sacrifices that were worthy of being brought to God. So if you brought your lamb to the temple, the priest would examine it for spots and blemishes because 
uh, you know, you're supposed to give your best to God, your first to God, not some broken down lamb that's about ready to die. Oh, hey, I've got an offering for God. Let's hurry and get it to the temple before it dies. Uh, and so the priest would examine it for blemishes. And so the Jew listening to this would key in on this. Um, and so they're standing with the Lamb of God who was without blemish in his sacrifice on the cross. There are 144,000 followers of his without blemish, like their Lord. Now, John wrote these things after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He was writing more like 96 AD. The Jews could no longer offer sacrifices because there wasn't an altar and there wasn't a temple. They couldn't bring their lambs to God. But they didn't need to because Jesus was their lamb, and by faith in him, they could be just like the 144,000. They, too, could be without spot and blemish before the Lord because God the Father sees us in Jesus Christ. He sees us as already perfected by the work of Jesus Christ. And so that's a really powerful image, especially to a Jewish uh, person in the first century who was pining over the loss of the temple. Uh, God saying, here's the lamb that the temple prefigured, and here's the result of following him. Uh, and so get your eyes on Jesus. In the middle of the tribulation, things are going to get much more intense for those who dwell on the earth. We saw in chapter 13, the man we call the Antichrist is going to be assassinated, but he'll be returned to life. We also saw that he would be empowered by Satan. He'd be indwelt by the devil. Although he can't touch the 144,000, he is given power to kill two other powerful witnesses who we read about earlier. He has a sidekick who can perform miracles and signs and wonders and who demands everyone worship the Antichrist. And if they refuse, they'll first be cut off from all society and then they'll be cut down, mowed down by persecution. At the precise moment when the greatest pressure is on for lost men and women to make a decision that would forfeit their souls to the devil for eternity, God dispatches an angel with the gospel of Jesus Christ to warn the human race. It's an unprecedented move. Verse six, then I saw another flying angel in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. You know, every now and then there's some atmospheric event that gets us out and looking up at the sky. Anymore, it's just rain. Uh, I, everybody does that on Facebook. Oh, I felt something come out of the sky. What is it? You know, and it's rain and there's very little of it. But you know what I'm talking about? You know, the Halley's Comet goes by or, you know, what are those two planets? You know, is that, you know, whatever and stuff. Uh, Mid-tribulation, people are going to tell you, hey, you need to get outside and look up. An angel is flying by preaching the gospel in a loud voice. Now that is going to be something. I get all excited when the jets go over from LNAS, you know. Loud, and it's like, wow, that's exciting. This is going to be like that only a hundred times more powerful. Can you imagine looking up in the sky and seeing a holy angel preaching the gospel with a loud voice? This is amazing. Talk about pulling out all the stops. This is it when it comes to gospel preaching. Every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, meaning everyone, will hear the warning and be invited to receive the Lord as their Savior. I think somehow even deaf people are going to hear it. 
because the Lord wants every last living person at that moment to know that the decision they make is final. Have you ever heard that the gospel must be preached to the whole world before Jesus can return? It's true, but that's with regards to his second coming. The gospel will be preached to the whole world by this angel before the second coming of Jesus Christ. The gospel does not and most likely will not be preached to the whole world prior to the resurrection and rapture of the church. That doesn't mean we should get lazy or not care about bringing the gospel everywhere there's an open door. It just means that uh, it's, not, uh, it's not an obligation. The Lord can come and rapture the church and resurrect the dead believers before every creature hears the gospel, and chances are he will. The gospel is called the everlasting gospel here. That's because of the particular aspects of it the angel emphasizes that the hour of his judgment has come. In other words, this is the last opportunity to decide. Everlasting life in heaven or in hell is always on the line. But in the middle of the tribulation, it's going to be on the line as never before, before the clock is ticking. Here's what I mean. Right now, the Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment. That means up until the point you die, you have an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ. You can repent. Thief on the cross, the one who turned to Jesus in repentance, Jesus said, hey, you're going to die in a few seconds, but today you're going to be with me in paradise. And so in today's dispensation, you have a chance to receive Christ until you die, and then after that, it's too late. After that, your, your destiny is sealed. In the tribulation, mid-tribulation, when the Antichrist says, take my mark and worship me, this angel says, you do that, you're lost from this point on. There is no repentance. And there will be nobody who's begging for repentance after that and being denied. And so it's, it's very, very serious. There's not going to be a second chance after this moment. So God says, I have to let everybody know exactly what the decision uh, they're making means. And he does. Another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Another angel looks ahead to the fall and destruction of a literal city of Babylon that's going to exist in the tribulation. There's also going to be a false religious system called Babylon. We're going to read all about them and talk all about them in chapters 17 and 18. The city and the system make all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. It's just a way of saying that the world always wants to get you drunk on its excesses so that you will commit spiritual fornication and move away from your relationship with God. One aspect of being drunk, you are desensitized to things that would normally be off limits. You feel uninhibited. The world gluts us so much that we, things that we would once have considered off limits don't seem so bad or they can even seem good. I think, and I don't wanna bust this all out, but I think there are areas in all of our lives where we used to be a little bit more holy, a little bit more pure, but because the world is way out over here and we're still, you know, not as bad as the world, we feel pretty safe. But if your standards have changed from the time you got saved and they haven't changed in a good way, uh, if, you're, if you're actually 
you know, returning to things that you once gave up because you think you have the maturity to do it. Maybe you do, or maybe it's just desensitization. Uh, that's something for you to decide with the Lord. Just know that the world, that's what it does. It gluts you, it overpowers you with its images and its idolatry and ideology, trying to get you to move a little bit more towards it. And um, it's, the world's pretty successful in doing that. Uh, verse nine, then a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Any concern you might have about involuntarily taking the mark of the beast and being lost forever without realizing it are alleviated by these verses. Whatever the mark turns out to be, you must consciously choose to worship or to not worship the Antichrist in conjunction with it. You will first be warned by an angel declaring these words from the sky in a language you can understand. And so this is why having a social security number or a credit card or a national ID card or even having an implanted microchip do not bother me in the least. We won't be on the earth when the Antichrist demands worship. It won't be until mid-trib, three and a half years into it, will have been resurrected or raptured along with all the believers of the church age. And at any rate, it's a conscious decision. You don't just wake up. Bank of America or Wells Fargo isn't gonna send you a card and then you swipe it the first time and it comes, Mark of the Beast, Mark of the Beast, ah, you're lost. You have to decide. And God, makes, and God comes to you with these angels and says, this is the decision you're making. Do you want to be lost forever? Then take the mark. Do you want to be saved? Then receive Christ. If you want to oppose microchipping or technology uh, and the invasion of technology, do it on the basis of privacy issues. It's not a biblical problem, really. Technology is not the mark of the beast. Eternal conscious torment is sadly taught in the Bible. I wish it wasn't. There awaits the devil and fallen angels, the Antichrist and his false prophet, an eternal place of torment with fire and brimstone. It was created especially for them, but it will be the eternal destination of all those humans who worship the Antichrist after being forewarned, and it will be the address of all those who die throughout all of time without receiving Jesus Christ. It's kind of a little movement within Christianity right now to bring back... Um, a position called annihilationism. Annihilationism teaches that uh, when a non-believer dies, they're just annihilated. It's as if they never existed. There is no eternal conscious torment. There are a couple of verses here and there that you may be able to read that way. And these are the verses that the proponents of it use. But the overwhelming majority of verses that speak about our eternal destiny uh, are clear that something is gonna go on forever and ever in an eternal conscious way. Uh, and so I wish, I want to teach annihilationism because of loved ones that I've had uh, and some of your loved ones who you suspect are probably not in heaven. I wish annihilationism were true, but it's not. Uh, there is eternal conscious torment. Verse 12, 
Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works, follow them. (laughs) There will be those who refuse the mark. Their patience means their willingness to endure whatever earthly consequences come their way. For multitudes, that's gonna be martyrdom. They will be the dead who die in the Lord from that decision on. They'll choose heaven over earth and they will find eternal rest from their labors. Be difficult to be on the earth without the mark. Once safe in heaven, their works will follow them because the Lord will reward them with those things that cannot be corrupted or taken away. Now at the end of verse 13, you're told that the spirit speaks. His words are exactly what you'd expect him to say as the comforter. Things are gonna be tough, but it's gonna be great in the end. Hang in there, live for Jesus, live for eternity. You know, the, the Holy Spirit is given to us as our comforter, and comfort is a strong word. You know, sometimes when I hear the word comforter, I think of one of those fuzzy blankets, you know, that you kind of wrap up in, and it's all cuddly. Your little kitty comes and sits with you, and those kinds of things. Comfort is a strong word. It, it, it's a word where you are filled with strength during times of suffering. That's the kind of comfort. So the Holy Spirit comes and he says, yeah, yeah, you're suffering. Sure you are. Hang in there. Hang tough. Keep going for it in Jesus Christ because one day this is going to all be over and you're going to live forever and your reward is waiting for you. Now, we tend to think of making a decision to follow Jesus as a one-time event that we can point to in our past, saving us for eternity from eternal conscious torment. And that's true. But if you're saved, you are to go on deciding to follow Jesus day by day. The world and the devil exert pressure upon what the Bible calls your flesh. It's a constant struggle this side of heaven. That's why you're told to count yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Jesus Christ. It's a choice. It's something that you have to decide. Am I going to yield myself to the flesh and sin or am I going to yield myself to the spirit and walk in the power of the spirit? Likewise, you're told in the scripture to go on being filled with the Spirit. It's a choice because you're encouraged to ask and seek and knock for the Spirit in greater measure all of the time. And so the Christian life begins with a decision, but it continues day by day with many, many decisions along the way. Uh, At the end of our service, we always give you an opportunity to spend time with the Lord and to make those kinds of decisions. Uh, especially asking to be filled and refreshed in his spirit. Take advantage of those times. Realize that when the word of God is taught, God is speaking to you about things in your life. He wants you to talk back to him and make some decisions, make some uh, arrangements, make some changes, make some commitments between you and him. Take advantage of that time when we get to it. Now, in verses 14 through 20, the Lord defers to the decision that you make. Our verses at the end of chapter 14, they read kind of like a movie trailer for the coming battle of Armageddon that occurs at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Now, I know what you're thinking, man, this bounces around. And it does. Chapter 14 does bounce us around. The revelation of Jesus Christ is chronological if you follow the opening of the seven seals, the blowing of the seven trumpets, the pouring out of the seven bowls. That'll give you the chronology through the seven years. In between, there are chapters that give you filler information where you'll learn about the 144,000 or the Battle of Armageddon or the city of Babylon or whatever. And it's up to us to put those into their chronological order, which is not that hard to do. 
Uh, and so what we're looking at here clearly is going to be the end of the age because it talks about the final judgment. So we're looking ahead in these verses now to what we call the battle of Armageddon. Jesus and his holy angels are depicted as harvesters coming to harvest souls with sickles in their hand. In verses, uh, the verses rather describe the harvest of mankind by comparing it first to a harvest of grain, then to a harvest of grapes. Each one focuses on a particular aspect of the final harvest at the second coming. The harvest of grain focuses on the separation of believers from non-believers. The harvest of grapes focuses on the crushing of the armies gathered together against the Lord at his second coming. So the Lord comes, he descends from heaven, He's coming to divide the sheep from the goats and to establish his kingdom. But before he does, he has to uh, be involved in the battle of Armageddon and destroy his enemies. And so that's what we're looking at here. First of all, verse 14, I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Jesus once said of himself that the son of man shall be seen coming upon the clouds of heaven and he said that he would send his angels to gather the elect. And so there's no doubt that this person is Jesus. The reaper sickle is the most common symbol known to mankind that represents death. Faithfully carried by the person we call the grim reaper, by death personified, it has been widely depicted in everything from movies and games to religious scripture and mythology. Truth is, it's not a grim reaper, but angels who will assist Jesus by gathering the human race and separating believers from non-believers. Believers are going to live on into the kingdom of heaven on earth that Jesus establishes for a thousand years. Non-believers are reaped and thus lost for eternity, having rejected God's many offers of salvation. Verse 15, and another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. This is an announcement. All of this plays out like a stage production with perfect timing. It reminds us that what we're reading about in Revelation is definitely going to happen just the way it's pre-written. This isn't a situation of warning where, hey, if you guys don't get it together, I'll have to do this. We're not going to get it together as a race. God is going to do this. Uh, there's no stopping it once it's begun. The particular words that are chosen here describe overly ripe grain. Wheat and tares look alike. They're left to overripen because the grain heads of wheat will eventually bow down, whereas the tares will remain erect. The harvest of grain is describing the process of separating believers and non-believers at the return of Jesus. In Matthew 25, this same event is described as separating sheep from goats. Same thing. The wheat or sheep represent believers who survive the tribulation. They will enter into the kingdom of heaven on earth as its first citizens. The tares or the goats represent non-believers who have survived the tribulation. They will be cast into Hades to await their final judgment at the end of the thousand-year kingdom of heaven on earth. Verse 16, so he who sat upon the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. You see why God is going to such extraordinary lengths to reach out with the gospel during the final seven years, because the time grows shorter and shorter for the swath of the sickle. And once that reaping takes place, eternal destinies are set. The harvest of souls is next compared to a harvest of grapes in verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. 
you're counting, this is the fifth angel in this chapter. This harvest is describing the events immediately upon the return of Jesus to the earth before he sits and judges between sheep and goats, wheat and tares. The armies of the world will be gathered together to oppose the Lord in the Valley of Megiddo. That's why we call it the Battle of Armageddon. Jesus will easily overcome his enemies. Those who die in this harvest die in their sins and they'll be lost for eternity. Verse 18, and another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. Power over fire probably means this is the same angel which was mentioned in chapter eight and nine who stands by the altar of burnt offering. That was significant because he has authority over its fire to offer the incense to God that represents the prayers of the saints. And so the coming forth of this angel tells you that the prayers of the tribulation martyrs will be answered. Their prayers for uh, retribution and for God to end the suffering. Verse 19, so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Winepress, of course, you know, is a large vat where grapes are collected and crushed. The juice flows out of a duct that leads into a large holding vat. The winepress is often used in the Bible as a symbol of God's judgment against sin. It's an illustration for the punishing, crushing judgment at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as we'll read right now, uh, men will literally be crushed and their blood will flow. The winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. The city is Jerusalem. Blood from the human armies Jesus defeats at his second coming might be pooled as high as a horse's bridle for about 180 miles. I say might be because some scholars suggest that the verse only means that blood will spatter as high as a horse's bridle. Either way, this is a terrible, bloody battle in which multiplied thousands are killed. By the way, we come back with the Lord wearing white garments and we're not even gonna get stained. I mean, so when we talk about a battle, this isn't, it's just the Lord coming back and defeating his enemies with the word of his mouth. But they're gonna be crushed in a brutal fashion and their blood's gonna flow. Now, people object to the mention of horses since we live in such an advanced technological age with sophisticated weapons of war like unmanned drones. Well, a lot of stuff's gonna be wiped out by the judgments of the tribulation. I have no problem believing that horses will again be used in the Battle of Armageddon. And remember too, Jesus returns on a great white horse and we return with him on horses. It's gonna be a big day for equestrian lovers. There'll be horses all over the place, so get into it. I should probably learn how to ride a horse. As you know, I'm terrified of all animals, but especially dolphins and horses. Dolphins because they're mostly weaponized. Hey, you don't believe me. And horses because they're just mean. Uh, but anyway. The overripe aspect of this final harvest is to remind you that throughout history and especially in the tribulation, God is striving with sinners seeking to save them. Both believers and not believers complain God isn't doing enough to curtail evil in the world. God admits that the world is overripe for judgment, but he's waiting and waiting and waiting for more to be saved because the alternative is so drastic, it's so final, it's so tragic. Yes, God says, yeah, I'm gonna let the world get overly ripe for judgment. I'm gonna let it go on and on and on and on as long as I possibly can because the alternative when I come back 
is so final. And those that are not, those that don't turn to the Lord are gonna be harvested. They're gonna be reaped for an everlasting judgment. One day God's long suffering will end. It will be too late to repent and believe on the Lord. Even today, when, you know, when it seems like you have time, right? Uh, you know, because we can repent up until the time that you die. But you don't know when you're gonna die. We prayed for a gentleman last night in our prayer meeting who suddenly died of a heart attack at age 47. 47 years old, heart attack. And then there's accidents that happen all the time. So, you know, death is, is always imminent if you're a human being. Doesn't matter how old you are, it's indiscriminate and imminent. And so if you haven't made that initial decision to receive Jesus Christ as your savior from sin, know this, the Lord is doing everything he can to reach you. If you're here, he is reaching out to you. His Holy Spirit is here. It's not my words, it's the word of God taken by the spirit of God, reaching into your heart, giving you the ability to say yes to God and to be saved, to turn to God from your idolatry, to be saved for eternity. Have you made that decision? Because God will defer to your decision. Love like that which was shown on the cross where Jesus died, it can't be forced on you. It has to be received freely as a gift, but it's always offered. As long as you have breath, it's being offered. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you need to come to Jesus Christ while you still have time. If you are a Christian, which the majority of you are, you can think back on that momentous decision that you made, uh, asking Jesus to save you, forgive you of your sins, to be born again, when you decided to follow Jesus. The message for us this morning, as we saw earlier, is those decisions go on and on and on every day. I have decided to follow Jesus every day, to take up my cross daily, to become more like him, not less like him. And so as we go into our time of individual prayer and then praising the Lord, uh, talk to the Lord about any decisions that are pending that he is talking to you about this morning, about holiness and purity and things like that, uh, so that you will and all of us will finish well.